Welcome everyone to the Reformed Confessional Podcast in the April 2023 edition. My name is John Fry, and thank you for joining us today. As always, Reformed Confessional exists to promote Reformed Confessionalism, to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, and to extol the supremacy of Christ over all things. Praise God indeed. Well, today we have a very interesting subject matter, two topics that are near and dear to my heart, where we will link both Calvinism and covenant theology together. But before we dive in, I wanted to let everyone know a little bit of situational awareness. From time to time, you will hear myself and Brother Nick Myers rotate back and forth on the blogcast, and sometimes we have a dialogue on this very podcast itself. And if you're wondering where Nick has been, well, Nick has been taking seminary classes. And so those demands will not allow him to certainly forsake his calling as full-time husband and father. So he's just continued to contribute through writing on our website at reformconfess.com. And from time to time in between semesters, he'll join me on this podcast and record a blogcast here and there. So Nick's doing well. Thank you for the continued prayers. As you'll notice, we took the month of March off for the podcast for the fact that some of us were in seminary, as aforementioned, some graduating seminary, some starting new jobs, some men like Brother Aaron Cohen is filling a pulpit full-time now, and myself, well, I was busy prepping and, bless my wife's heart, having our third child. So here we are again in the latter portion of April to come to you and glorify God through what is hopefully edifying and sanctifying for you. So today, I'm very excited to discuss Calvinism, a gateway to covenant theology. Now, this comes from my heart to you. This is based on an article I wrote, and we posted October 1st. I'm thinking it was 2021. Really, it was just an observation from the church we were in to many men of God who I'd like to read and, and listen to. Uh, basically, there there are Calvinists amongst us who would adhere to the doctrines of grace that do not adhere to covenant theology. So we here at Reformed and Confessional, if you go to our website at reformconfess.com, what you'll see is two words that really exemplify a mission. It really concisely states our mission, and that's reform solidarity. Certainly, there are things to disagree about across denominational lines, However, we don't want those areas and issues to blur all the wonderful things we have to show and display solidarity in. So certainly Calvinism and covenant theology, these are things that as Presbyterians and Baptists of 1646 and 1689 men, we would do our best to find solidarity in. Even the nuances and the different ways we view covenant theology in, nonetheless, we still observe that God is a covenanting God. So what I wanted to do today was to hopefully appeal to those who uh, are Calvinists. This won't be a defense of Calvinism. I will presuppose it. But this will be to those who either A, are Calvinists but don't embrace covenant theology, or B, maybe you do embrace Calvinism and covenant theology, but you'd like to be able to discuss it more intelligently, more biblically with those around you who aren't quite convinced or maybe just not knowledgeable about covenant theology. So what I'm going to do, if you're interested, you can check out the blog that I'm referencing, but I am going to develop some of the thoughts a little bit more today, and it, it won't be you know, line upon line, certainly, but that blog will be a good outline for where I'm going today. So with that, what I think would be wise to do is start with the end in mind. I'm going to end up promoting the fact that 
The doctrine of unconditional election, which is a tenet of Calvinism, corresponds with the way in which God covenants with his people today and in the Bible. So that if an individual is convinced of unconditional election, it's not a very large bridge to build and cross into covenant theology. And here we get going. So what the first thing we'll do is define covenant. And the way that I'll do that is by utilizing two more modern authors, Brother Samuel Renahan, who represents the Reformed Baptist perspective, and then Minister Jonty Rhodes, who represents the Presbyterian perspective. So these books here that I am quoting from, uh, they I can throw those in the show notes for you. Samuel Renahan's book is titled The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom. And Jonty's book is titled Covenants Made Simple, Understanding God's Unfolding Promises to His People. Now, I will say I am of a 1689 persuasion, but Jonty's book, I remember reading it for the first time at the recommendation of Nick Myers. And really, that helped me wrestle through and grasp the covenant of life uh, that we see there with God and Adam in the garden. Nonetheless, I recommend either one of those books for anybody, really, from a baptistic perspective. It'll help you understand the 1689 perspective on covenant. And for those who disagree with that, it'll still help you understand what you're disagreeing with and refine your position. And then for Jaunty, again, it's covenants made simple. So they're, they're a little bit more than just introductory primers, but it's great for people who are new to covenant theology, both those books. So uh, I'll, I'll lean on them as we define covenant. Sam Renahan, uh, what, the way he defines this on page 41 of his book is in two very simple words, and that's guaranteed commitment. Now, to be able to say that, you have to understand the one that a covenant is coming from, and that would be the immutable, trustworthy, reliable God. So God's, what God says goes. So it's a guaranteed commitment. Now, John T. Rhodes, he defines it as a conditional promise. So you'll see in the Bible, if this, then that. So based on certain conditions, there will be a promise fulfilled. And oftentimes, even if those conditions are omitted, well, the opposite side of the same coin, a promise is fulfilled. Blessings for obedience and punishment and consequences for disobedience. So either way, whether it's obedience or disobedience, a promise is being fulfilled. Now, both men affirm, so I've said guaranteed commitment and a conditional promise. Both men affirm that these are concise definitions and require much more explanation, but guaranteed commitment and a conditional promise, this will help us grasp what we mean by covenant. One of the things I do want to do before we just simply take a brief survey of God covenanting in the Bible is I want to expound briefly on Pastor Renahan's introductory definition. So we have a conditional promise, a guaranteed commitment, and then again on page 41, this is what Samuel Renahan says, quote, because God is one of the contracting parties in the covenants under consideration, and because covenants are not a natural feature of the creator-creature relationship, all covenants are the results of God's own free initiative to carry out his purposes and to do good to mankind. Covenants are not, quote, take it or leave it options. God imposes his covenant on man and determines the commitments, end quote. Now, that is our first link to connecting covenant theology with unconditional election, right? We, we would say that God chose his elect people, and the people had they had no choice, no say. We would go to Romans 9 and look at Jacob and Esau to expound that. And maybe even later, we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. What Samuel Renahan is asserting here is that covenants 
are the results of God's free initiative. And that's exactly what unconditional election is. It is in the salvation of man is the result of God's free initiative. And, and he says covenants are not take it or leave it. And salvation, when God chooses someone before the beginning of time, it's not take it or leave it. It's not an option. You are chosen and God's grace in your election and in the effectual call is simply irresistible. So I really appreciate the definitions of covenant, a guaranteed promise and a, or excuse me, a guaranteed commitment and a conditional promise. But the way that Pastor Renahan expounds on that definition shows us that a covenant is a lot like unconditional election in the fact that they're based on God's free initiative to carry out his purposes and to do good to mankind. That's a lot. sounds a lot like election. So with that, we will survey the covenants of the Bible. What I'll do, uh, just bear with me because we'll take a look at, let's see, probably one, two, three, four, five, six different covenants within the Bible. I'm going to read the scripture to you. So you look it up on your own. Uh, But we're going to take a look at the covenant of life. And also, if you may be unsure if there's a covenant there in the garden, there is another article that I wrote later. It's on our website as well. It's called In Defense of the Covenant of Life. So check that out. Again, not for this time, but you can certainly read that. Again, here it is, Adam uh, saying, quote, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, cross-referencing Genesis chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Another covenant is the Noahic covenant, saying, quote, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, and verse 11. So then here we see next Abraham saying, quote, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, quote, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Before we read three more, remember covenant is concisely defined as a guaranteed commitment. So there's a guaranteed commitment we've seen with Adam, with Noah, and with Abraham. And then with Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, saying, quote, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. And to David, saying, quote, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And of course, later in the Psalms, that is referenced there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as a covenant made to David, a guaranteed commitment. And then lastly, the church, saying, quote, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. So what we went, we went from Adam to Jesus, and we see that from the very beginning, God chose to covenant with his people. So this is based on God's free initiative, his choice, his immutability, right? That's his, he is unchanging. Cross-reference James chapter 1, verse 17. His immutability confirms that we don't need to expect anything different than a covenant as the way that God chooses to relate to his people today. So whether it was with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with the, the disciples at the Last Supper and the church, 
we see that God is a covenanting God. He is a God who, of his own free initiative for his glory and the good of man, makes guaranteed commitments. So what I'd like to do at this juncture is connect covenant, our covenanting God, to Calvinism. And the first thing I want to do is reference B.B. Warfield, volume five of his 10-volume works, the works of Benjamin B. Warfield. This is page 359 under a heading, Soteriology of Calvinism, okay? Here's just a, a line or two to give you a, an idea of the concept of really those who are Calvinists, what we believe the Bible is teaching about God himself, and we'll take this from B.B. Warfield, and then we'll connect it to covenant, okay? So starting with Calvinism and then connecting it with all the things we just saw in our covenant in God. So here is what B.B. Warfield says, quote, Indeed, the soteriological significance of predestination to the Calvinists consists in the safeguard it affords to monergistic regeneration to purely supernatural salvation. What lies at the heart of his soteriology is the absolute exclusion of the creaturely element in the initiation of the saving process, that so the pure grace of God may be magnified. That's a wonderful quote because it gives those who may not understand the the doctrines of grace the motive behind God. It is that he receives all the glory. And the phrase monergistic regeneration, that means that salvation is of God's free initiative and choice and monergistic, singular. It's it's not a process where man must do something in order to obtain regeneration, but rather it's God, just as Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27 lets us know it is God who grants monergistic regeneration. And what B.B. Warfield goes on to say, it's purely supernatural salvation. What lies at the heart of his soteriology is the absolute exclusion of creaturely element and the initiation of the saving process. That doesn't excuse us from a role in our sanctification following salvation. But what we see here in this last line is going to help us look at Calvinism and then begin to connect us to, to covenant, okay? So what we've seen here is the absolute exclusion of a creaturely element in the initiation. And that sounds a lot like what God did in covenant. It's God, his initiation, that he initiated a covenant with Adam. He initiated a covenant with Noah when Noah found grace in the eyes of God. The Lord initiated a covenant with Abraham. The Lord calling Moses out of the wilderness. He initiated a covenant with Moses and the children of Israel. He initiated a covenant with David, the the shepherd from Bethlehem. And then Jesus here, he institutes the Lord's Supper, and he initiates the new covenant with his body and his blood. And so you're again seeing how the initiation of God to make covenants is just like the initiation of God to bring people salvation. And that's where I'm really trying to see as we we are examining the character and the outflowing of the way God interacts with his creation. It's through covenant. And there are some uh, who are brothers and sisters in Christ that would affirm unconditional election, but maybe not covenant theology. When we see that in election, God is making the initiation, giving you know the, the salvation, the gifts of faith and repentance, monergistic regeneration, as B.B. Warfield put it, and that's exactly what it does in covenant. He initiates them and those parties that are brought into initiation with them, just as Pastor Renahan said, it's not take it or leave it. It's you're in covenant with God because God said you are. And and you either obey and keep the covenant or you break it. 
So that's some of really the focal point of how uh, the, the covenant theology, whether it be of the Reformed Baptist or the Presbyterian, relates to Calvinism. And what we've established so far, very briefly, is a, a definition of covenant, a survey of biblical covenants, noting that these guaranteed commitments are based on God's own free initiative. And then we looked at B.B. Warfield, who talks about Calvinism, and says that at the very foundation of Calvinism is that it makes much of God through asserting monergistic regeneration to eliminate the initiation of anything other than supernatural, i.e., God is the great initiator and accomplisher of our salvation. We look at unconditional election, and we look at covenanting in the Bible, and they are oh so similar. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 to support the doctrine of unconditional election, and then I'm going to make one more covenantal observation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This language is also interchangeable with the way God covenanted. He chose the people, the time, and the sanctions and, and the ratifications of the covenants. Just as he chose people according to the purpose of his will he to bring into salvation, he chose people according to the purpose of his will to bring into covenant with him. So they're very synonymous if you examine a biblical theology. So one concept, an example that I would like to bring right here is an Abrahamic observation. I know of no Calvinist or Arminian, no covenant theologian or a person who would assert dispensationalism who denies that God entered into a covenant with Abraham and that's seen in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17. So following the death of his father, Abraham dwelt with his wife and nephew in Haran. Now, historically, the natural division within the book of Genesis is between chapters 11 and 12. Now, here's the thing. The problem with that division between chapters it create, in the Bible is that uh, for the reader, it creates something of a gap where we often forget that Abraham was not the only man on earth when God chose to make a covenant with him. And we know that because Genesis 10 and 11 detail the descendants from Noah to Abraham. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, they repopulated the earth. So when God comes to Abram or Abram in Genesis chapter 12 to make a covenant with him, here's what he did. He chose one man to make one people from among all other descendants of Noah. In my humble opinion, there's perhaps no more profound of an example of God's sovereign election than when he chose to covenant with Abraham. He could have picked anybody in the ancient Mesopotamian lands. He could have picked anybody to reveal himself to, but he chose Abraham on his own free initiative, nothing that Abraham did. God came to Abraham and selected him. 
So what we see when God enters covenant with Abraham is exactly what we see in monergistic regeneration. It's exactly what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, which that we read. The doctrine of election asserts the same thing that we observe happens when God covenants with someone in terms of how God is interacting with man. God initiates it, brings man into it, and as Pastor Rahan says, it's not take it or leave it. So to me, it would be very natural for someone who believes in the doctrine of unconditional election to adopt covenant theology because it consistently views and portrays God as the grand initiator with his people from Adam, as we saw in Hosea 6-7 and in Genesis chapter 2 verses 9-15, through 15, all the way to Jesus spilling his blood for our atonement. So I hope that makes sense uh, to each and every one of you today. What I wanted to end with today is is this small snippet from the article I referenced in October 1st of 2021. It says this, The inseparability of covenant and conversion. Perhaps you or somebody you know is a Calvinist but does not confess covenant theology. I'd like to state that Calvinism, specifically unconditional election, is the doctrinal fruit of covenant theology. Hopefully you have seen the consistency between God's election of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and God's election of believers today and the new covenant. Lastly, please note how inseparable the covenant and the doctrine of election were for the saints who penned the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and which we know this is uh, very much nearly word for word from 7.2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, stating, quote, Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promise to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Praise God that he gives his Holy Spirit to make us According to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, willing and able to believe. So my friends, uh, again, we come in, in peace, in love, hopefully speaking truth and love to edify the body, to help expose the word to the sanctification of the saints. Whether you adhere to Calvinism or covenant theology, or maybe you do both, I hope that you take these scriptures, these ideas, and wrestle with them. And we pray that the Holy Spirit works in you to bring about sound doctrine that leads to God-glorifying, obedient living. God bless you. Please visit our website at reformconfess.com, and we will see you next month with our articles that are released every Friday, our blogcast, and this podcast.